Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 92. Reboot. Today, we begin, in earnest, the road to the Seven Years' War, by looking at the imperial system which was born out of the Glorious Revolution. The first phase of British, or should I say English, imperialism was born during the Elizabethan era. It saw the creation of England's first colonies, Jamestown and Plymouth. If you think back to our very early episodes, you'll recall that a defining feature was disinterest. They were theoretically subject to the motherland, but London had very little interest in doing anything in the New World unless it was forced into it. Virginia had to be nearly destroyed in the early 1620s, remember the Powhatan Wars, before the Crown stepped in. Massachusetts spent the better part of half a century in technical rebellion, but enforcing its authority was a very low priority for England. Fundamentally, it had more important things to deal with. The British Isles were preoccupied with the English Civil War, which gradually brought in the kingdoms of Scotland and Ireland. Meanwhile, Europe was focused on the Thirty Years' War. The Holy Roman Empire, Bavaria and Spain were fighting against the French, Swedes and Dutch. The whole war started when Frederick V of the Palatinate became King of Bohemia, and Frederick was married to Elizabeth Stuart, the daughter of King James I and sister of Charles I. The fact that England didn't even get involved in the Thirty Years' War shows how much its attention was elsewhere. Colonial affairs didn't even register. Things began to change in 1660 with the restoration of the monarchy and Charles II. Charles slowly, but surely, started bringing the American colonies under greater control. Rhode Island was given a royal charter. Charles expanded England's influence to the south, creating Carolina, and then seized the Dutch colonies to create New York and New Jersey. There was an attempt to take even more control during the ill-fated Dominion of New England, But the Glorious Revolution changed everything, and created the second phase of English, and by now what we can call British imperialism. This was the age of the Whigs, and was an age of supreme complacency. The Glorious Revolution was radical. It gave Parliament a real say in government, and it expanded the basis of that power. It wasn't democracy, it must be remembered. The monarchy was weaker, there would be no absolutism in Britannia. Instead, the aristocracy and squirearchy rose to preeminence. It seemed a golden age. To give a sweeping generalisation, Britain experienced 60 years of unrestrained success, resulting in the dramatic victories of the Seven Years' War, 
which we will come back to. The Whiggish squirearchy was content to stay in the countryside with their manor and their dogs, their fox hunting and religion, and saw no reason to question anything. Then there was the aristocracy, those who practiced power. They were worldlier, but they also had learnt all the wrong lessons from the Glorious Revolution. Rather than the principle of no taxation without representation, which would inspire so many in the colonies, they had seized power for themselves. It was their duty to exercise power, and they guarded it jealously from anyone who tried to take it from them. They wanted nothing to change. The master of this system was Robert Walpole. Walpole effectively created the position of Prime Minister in Britain, and he was the dominant figure in British political life for decades. He created a machine of patronage that kept himself and his allies in power. Those who supported him would be rewarded. I'm sure you see the problem with this. Such a system means that talent is not the primary factor in selecting public officials. Sure, occasionally the right person would be placed in the right place at the right time. Pitt the Elder was able to call upon General Wolfe to conquer Canada. But the system tended to rely on people of only passable competence who would not be able to cope should an emergency occur. These problems were noticeable while Pitt the Elder and Walpole dominated Britain, but nothing was done. Nobody wanted to change anything. To change anything would be to betray the most fundamental task of the British political system in the mid-18th century, preserving the legacy of the Glorious Revolution. The legacy of the Glorious Revolution, of course, being that it gave them power. Worse than this, the men of the era could not even conceive of anything different. They couldn't imagine a different worldview. They were locked into a mindset and a political system which was the answer to the problems of Stuart England, but which was unsuitable for dealing with the problems of Georgian Britain. This will be a huge element of the series as we progress. One of the things I wanted to do when I set out creating a history of the United States was to remove the myths from the history. When telling the dramatic American Revolution, the odds were stacked against the revolutionaries. Just look at Hamilton. Podcast footnote, yes, we finally have a serious reason to use Hamilton. End podcast footnote. The song Guns and Ships opens with Aaron Burr acting as the narrator, asking the question. How does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? How do we emerge victorious from the quagmire, leave the battlefield waving Betsy Ross's flag higher? This summarises the attitude of so many. While Britain may have been a global superpower, there were fundamental issues with the entire imperial system. It was poised to collapse. I am of the firm opinion 
that the American Revolution was inevitable, and that once it began, it was inevitable that it would succeed. This may be controversial to some, but I think that by the time we reach Yorktown, you'll agree with me. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. The British of the 18th century had a particularly unenlightened approach to their empire. A few hoped they could start over in the new world and make their fortune, while others viewed it as an investment. The most prevalent view was viewing it as a mixture of glory and burden, or simply not thinking about it at all. When we cover the Seven Years' War, as we will do in a couple of episodes, we will be particularly interested in events in the North American theatre, sometimes referred to as the French and Indian War. In Britain, this was just a minor stage. Certainly nothing compared to events in Europe. Just like during the 17th century, it would take the Stamp Act for America to finally become a significant issue in Britain, rather than something that most were dimly aware of in the background of more pressing matters. Such emergencies, such as the Stamp Act, were far from anyone's thoughts in 1750, the point to which we are roughly taking events before getting into the Seven Years' War. Instead, it was preoccupied with its enduring political and economic system. Yes, you heard me, economic. We are finally, finally going to dive into mercantilism. Now, I'm not an economist, I know it's shocking, so what I'm going to do is quote a passage from The Penguin History of the USA by Hugh Brogan, which discusses mercantilism. Enjoy. Quote, The term is convenient, but treacherous. It was never a coherent, universally practiced creed, and to present it as an obsolete economic theory, or quantrarise, as a forerunner of the economic policies of modern nation-states, is to oversimplify. The word itself is 19th century. Adam Smith, in The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, was the first commentator to identify the thing. He called it the mercantile system. Different countries adopted different varieties of it at different times. Generalisations about mercantilism are therefore certain to be unsound, and in what follows, I confine myself to the British variant. Still, there was nothing unique about the English system except the size of its success. Identifiably mercantilist doctrines were widely popular for many centuries, and at some time or other were adopted as government policy by every important state in Western Europe. In fact, mercantilism was one of the most universal expressions of the old order of the West. Its rise and decline corresponds closely to the rise and decline of that order. It was scarcely coincidental that 1776 saw the emergence not only of Adam Smith, 
the critic of mercantilism, but also of Jeremy Bentham, the critic of Blackstone, and Thomas Jefferson, the critic of the old politics. A moment of general crisis had arrived. Yet, the British mercantile system, if judged by its own tenants, was one of the old order's most solid successes. In the mid-18th century, its achievements were clear for all to see. The Empire was chief of them, for it encompassed, explained, and made possible all the others. Such a monumental structure could never have been erected by a purely economic theory. Mercantilism was a political as well as an economic doctrine. As one of its supporters asked, can a nation be safe without strength, and is power to be encompassed and secured but by riches? And can a country become rich anyway, but by the help of a well-managed and extended traffic? Mercantilism reflected the realities of a world in which interstate competition in all fields was deadly and incessant. It also intensified that competition. A large part of mercantilist ruler's purpose was to deny to his rivals, and to secure to himself, as big a piece as possible of what was thought to be a largely static quantity, the wealth of the world. It was, in part, a system of defensive commercial regulation, but was also the continuing, institutionalised expression of the ambitious, aggressive, outward-looking spirit which had inspired the first American settlements, the first quest for the world trade. Other considerations had played a part in colonisation, but commercial greed had never been lacking, and as greed was rewarded by success, the ever wealthier merchants of an ever wealthier England rose in influence. Their rigours began to colorize those statesmen and theorists. The great Earl of Clarendon, 1609-74, urged the need for a strong navy as encouraged by the Navigation Acts to check the immoderate desire of other states to engross the whole traffic of the universe. When the Second Dutch War broke out in 1664, General Monk commented on its origins. What matters this or that reason? What we want is more of the trade the Dutch have now. Fifty years later, John Withers, author of The Dutch Better Friends Than the French, remarked, If those frog lands were crushed, the trade of the world would be our own. Podcast footnote. While the ethnic slur, frog, is currently used to refer to someone who is French, this dates only to the 19th century. Before that, the slur was used to refer to the Dutch, as they were stereotyped as living in marshy lowlands. End podcast footnote. Such men demanded walls, plantations and acts of parliament to help on the quest for riches. The rulers of England, looking to the military strength, 
prosperity and and quiet of the realm were happy to cooperate and so mercantilism was born to put its stamp indelibly on the Atlantic Empire both in its creation and government. The earliest theorists were not especially interested, for the most part, in colonies. They hoped to extinguish Dutch competition, for a time their chief problem, by other means. But by the late 17th century, the English overseas possessions had come to play an essential part in mercantilist thought. Economic self-sufficiency was, as always, the aim, but now it was conceived on an imperial, not merely national, scale. All members of the empire, colonies, and mother country would contribute to the prosperity of all. Outside supply of skills or produce would not be needed. From this basis, the trade of the world would be captured and thus the wealth and glory of England would be splendidly augmented. The colonies were merely an expedient. Not for a moment were they supposed to have any purposes of their own. They existed for the sake of the mother country, which had founded and nourished, and now protected them. There was no room for sentiment or imagination in the great maritime and commercial struggle. The colonists' interests could never be allowed to take precedence over England's. According to a commentator in 1696, the same respect is due from them as from a tenant to his landlord. Their role was simply to provide, cheaply, those things, chiefly crops such as sugar, rice and tobacco, which the English could not or would not grow at home. They would thus emancipate England from dependence on foreigners. They would furnish the England merchant with a market which he would profitably monopolise once effective laws had been passed excluding foreign competition. And such laws, the celebrated Navigation Acts, were passed between 1651 and 1696. End quote. This is where we are going to leave things for next week. I hope you enjoyed our first episode of The Reboot, and I hope you'll join me next time to continue our in-depth exploration of mercantilism in the British imperial system. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you then. Thank <laughs> you.